Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me in the studio today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Kate Bealey. We're also delighted to welcome special guest Colin Lowe, a chartered financial planner at Kingsfleet Wealth, who will be commenting on stories in this week's magazine. In today's show, we're going to look at changes to the rules for investing in individual savings accounts, that's ISAs, the UK's most loved tax break, and we'll also look at how to decide whether to invest yourself or use the services of a professional. Other topics are how volatility in the bond market could hit employees who are saving into workplace pension schemes. And we're also going to discuss prospects for biotechnology funds, which have been topping the performance tables. But first, to another investment theme, financials. We're delighted to have Guy de Blonay, manager of the Jupiter Financial Opportunities Fund in the studio with us. Now this fund is a member of the Investors Chronicles Top 100 Funds. That's our select list of actively managed funds and investment trusts. The fund aims to seek out growth opportunities in financial services companies and to a lesser extent uh, property related companies on a global basis. However, many investors are probably still a bit wary of the financial stocks. From a UK perspective, um, financials have looked maybe like a bad place to be. We've had scandal after scandal and banks have racked up record-busting fines for LIBOR and Forex rigging scandals. So, Guy, can I ask you, what is the rationale for investing in financials? Good morning, Moira. I think um, we are we are well ahead of um, of expectations, and uh, we are certainly now coming to um, a close uh, when it comes to litigation issues and even regulatory um, uh, issues as well. Okay, um, so things aren't quite as bad as people might seem. Is that what you're saying? We're coming to the end. Well, regulation has has now uh, um, um, been been transformed to the extent that uh, it's going to be relatively difficult now for for rogue bankers to misbehave. The culture has also dramatically improved within uh, institutions, and many managements have been changed. So um, uh, you've got quite a quite a, a new. Uh, bloodstream now within the financial sector that should actually um, reconfort um, uh, investors but also members of the public that these companies are now going to be serving the country uh, rather than trying to make money on, on, on the back of it. So what types of companies are you f- are you holding? What are your favourite um, stocks in the portfolio at the moment? In, in, in Europe, uh, we, 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 we look for, for two different types of companies. The first one are special situations, companies that, are, that, are, that have a very depressed share price simply because no review on strategy or, or, or um, still um, um, a, a very poor management uh, in place uh, are simply not um, um, giving uh, the share price uh, any momentum. So if we can find any trigger uh, in that potential story uh, that, that, that defines a special situation, we'll be looking at these companies that are offering dip discount to, to book today. So attractive entry price uh, entry levels for for, share, for for investors and on the other uh, on the other side of the spectrum we we look for company well established you know the lloyds of this world where where we we where where the company will redistribute um, a, a, a large part of their earnings back to shareholders making them attractive income stories 
you have anything very unusual in the portfolio? Like we've seen, heard a lot about the challenger banks and, and you know, different ways that um, financial companies are being set up to uh, fulfil the needs of, of customers. What's in the portfolio? Well, in in the UK, we we um, we have Lloyd's. As uh, as I said earlier, it's a it's a it's a quality company that has been able to re- reposition itself to to a specific country, which is the UK, um, but also Ireland. But but very much uh, um, looking at cutting costs, has new strategies in place, and but 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 also have an ultimate goal, which is to redistribute a, ma- a, 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 a large a large um, part of its earnings back to shareholder. That is definitely rewarding shareholders on a re-rating of its share price. But also look at uh, restructuring stories. Royal Bank of Scotland is, 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 a, is a typical name that we're looking at. Um, it, 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 will, it will become uh, an, a, a national leader, a quality national leader at some point. We just need to, to understand how it's going to get uh, to, that, to that goal or to that point and, and how fast it will get there. So I think today it's an interesting um, restructuring story as well. Barclays as well, it offers a lot of value. We've got some Barclays shares in the fund. It's also um, a restructuring story. We have a new management. They are reducing their activity in investment bank. They are um, um, uh, revisiting all their investments on a global basis. It looks like a, another interesting um, value proposition for, for investors today. Uh, many investors have held uh, bank shares for a long time on the basis of yield and the, the regular income that they provide. First of all, at the moment, what's the yield on the fund currently? And how do you see that changing over time as some of those banks bring back dividend payments? Currently, the yield must, must be around 2 to 3%. Um, but it's, it's certainly not um, uh, a focus at the moment. As, as companies that offer um, more than 5% dividend yield today um, in the fund represent around 10% of the fund. So we're, we're not, we're certainly with, 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 Inflation expectation moving um, uh, stronger, or at least st- as we start to slightly shift away from a deflationary environment. Let's remember that over the last six to nine months, about we had about fifty plus interest rate cuts on a global basis from central banks mm-hmm. in concert. So it's certainly the second half of this year should provide um, some recovery or further recovery. Inflation expectations should pick up or continue to pick up. We've seen that in Japan. We're seeing that slightly in the US. Um, we are seeing that clearly in, in Europe. We are shifting away from deflation. doesn't mean we are out of the woods, um, but certainly the expectation is moving. So if, you are, uh, if, if, if that shift is going to confirm uh, itself within the next 6 to 12 months and hopefully for the next 3 years interest rate cycles will start to pick up and and therefore you should be able to look for restructuring stories that's where your capital appreciation will will, will be stronger than yield companies uh, so uh, but but this is again the yield companies have re-rated in values in in value simply because of this hunt for yield that we've seen a low interest rate environment has forced investors to look for 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 yield um within within the stock market as the bond market has been all overvalued um or is overvalued and offers very little yields this this can change as the shift of inflation expectation can can be confirmed i i, I again it's very early days 
we're starting to see first signs, but certainly we're moving away from this this deep ingrained fear of deflation. Um, Guy, um, your your performance of your fund, you've um, performed, um, returned about 15% over the last year. And that probably is, is, investors are probably very happy with 15%. But in relation to your benchmark index, you've underperformed that. Um, are you happy with that? I mean, where do you, where do you see things going from here? Well, we had a we had a good 2013. We had a difficult 2014, and the main reason is again comes back to what I said earlier. We we thought that uh, inflation expectation was going to be um, uh, to 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 shift um, um, already last year, and instead of having inflation expectation shifting um, towards uh, I mean, away from deflation, it, it actually deepened. I mean, infl- a deflationary scare actually took 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 over. We had a collapse in the old price. Uh, we had the ten-year Treasury fall from uh, from close to three percent down to one and a half percent. China was going to was seen as as going to implode, and um, and Mario Draghi did, certainly did not uh, say or do much. What we had this year, we had many. I mean, we had these fifty interest rate cuts. We had Mario Draghi coming on board in uh, in announcing um, a quantitative easing program. We have China pushing for more easing. We have Japan continuing to ease. We had only two countries over the last six to 12, nine months that have raised interest rates with it. It was Russia, but for the reasons we know, and are already cutting, and with Brazil that have very specific problems with their own economy. So what we've, the, the main reason of the underperformance last year is that we were too early we, or, or we were too optimistic about the reflationary um, environments. Um, so asset-sensitive names underperformed and yield companies actually continued to perform very well. And emerging markets benefited. We had very little exposure to emerging markets. And as bond yields continued to go down, uh, especially the, the, the dollar and the US dollar as a currency and also the 10-year treasury, that benefited emerging markets and we didn't have much in emerging markets. So so what are you doing now to try and uh, catch up with performance well, so get things right? To, well, I'm trying, I hope that I'm right um, in, in thinking that inflation expectations are finally picking up after all the all the actions that we've seen from central banks and the quantitative easing that is being unleashed in the market. Um, we have a relatively small exposure to um, to emerging market. It's already been rewarding this year. We are ahead of the benchmark. I am slightly concerned uh, about um, uh, one particular particular um, one or two points and simply that the 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 commodities index is continuing to fall. And that is a concern that deflationary pressures are still ongoing. The oil price is staying relatively weak, which is, again, telling us that um, deflationary, deflationary pressures are, are um, uh, um, still relatively sticky. So I am positioned for, for a shift in inflation expectation. It's been it's been rewarding this year, um, but I but I always keep in the back of my mind that things are not uh, as um, as clear cut. Um, can something can happen in China? We could have a, a a bond market dislocation triggered by liquidity. We could have uh, uh, all sorts of, of of issues going to 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 to, to the end of next year. 
But the point is, we are looking for a pickup in global growth as we go into the second half of this year, and that's how the the portfolio is positioned. You're talking a lot about the the macro picture here, and you know, China um, commodities, etc. But what about the actual stocks in your portfolio? What are you buying to add value? I mean, is there anything interesting you could tell us about that? Um, you know, a nice small interesting company from Italy or something like that. So what's in there? <laughs> Well, it's a very different, difficult question because all these these interesting companies that, for example, can benefit from um, um, a restructuring story, they will only f- they will only um, um, flourish if if the macro is right. Um, so what I try to to do is to is to break the portfolio in three. I try to put about. 30% of the portfolio um, uh, in, in um, income stocks. So it gives you a bit of a defensive element for the portfolio, companies that are giving you at current share price more than 5% yield. On the other end of the spectrum, as I said earlier, look for structuring sto- restructuring stories, companies that have depressed share prices, we could call them value, um, but have a clear path for recovery with a, with a new management in place, um, a program of selling non-core assets or underperforming assets, and, uh, and, 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 and hopefully an aspiration from the management to become an income stocks. So that, that would provide a re-rating for the shares. But in the middle of the, the, the remaining third would be, would be very much focused on growth companies. Uh, what we like at the moment is India, for example. We, we're not much in emerging markets, but India is very much a. Uh, which Indian company would you hold? Pri- private bank, um, mm-hmm. uh, like um, like Yes Bank, um, companies. That yes are, Bank. That sounds like an interesting one. The bank that always says yes. Is that right? Well, I don't know if they always say yes, but but they certainly call Yes Bank, <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's it's. I suppose. I suppose um, loan growth is 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 twenty percent plus. The return on equity is twenty five percent plus. I mean, these are highly profitable companies that, that will continue to benefit from the, the 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 reforms that Moody is is pushing through in the country, and it's a it's it's and it's a very dynamic country. So, over the long term, you you you'll, you'll make decent money in in India. I mean, whether it's 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 the right market to be involved in for the next six months, that's that's another question. So within this growth portion, you've got direct investments uh, or investments in emerging markets. And the second half of this growth portion would be in um, companies that that are um, offering disruptive technology. So Visa, MasterCard, these companies that are offering or are a network for for the cash uh, economy to become cashless economy. Visa and MasterCard that you've mentioned, they're, they're names that have been around for, for a long time and people will know know the companies very well. But yes. You're saying they're being disruptive. Well, well they, how are they doing that? These networks are actually helping other technologies um, to uh, piggyback this uh, this trend, which is um, to uh, favour uh, all payments to be done um, electronically. Mm-hmm. And the dig- digitalization um, of uh, financial services is the main theme that we're playing within our growth portion. I call it disruptive because you know, they've been disruptive for so long, mm-hmm. but I still think they are disruptive yes. because they are, they, they're still there and, and going stronger. So Visa MasterCard, a typical example of a, of, a, of a structural growth story that we have in the portfolio. Are there any uh, companies in the UK, sort of old traditional ones, that you think of having a new lease of life or have potential for growth? Thinking of, say, life assurers or, or mainstream banks. You mentioned a couple of those already, but in the UK, it's, it's 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 not it's it's not obvious. I I think if if I look at let's say 
I'll take a Swiss one, um, a Credit Suisse. Um, as you know, on the 1st of July, Tijan Thiem will, will become CEO. Um, he's been at Prudential, done an extraordinary job, share price more than quadrupled uh, over his, under his tenure. One thing that he will mostly favor for um, a company like Credit Suisse um, within its wealth management division is to install or push for, and then it would be interesting to hear what you have to say about it, about robo-advisors. <laughs> Having softwares that can take into account all your data and in a nanosecond give the first structure or skeleton of a financial solution. But I think this is this is something that uh, that can actually be interesting for shareholders of Credit Suisse because that would justify the high fees that they are actually currently taking. But you need a bit more than just the face-to-face -face relationship. You need to also have a technology that can help you to um, um, uh, reinforce the credibility of a, of, a, of a financial solution. Colin, are you feeling threatened by robo-advisors? I, I wish I hadn't asked. <laughs> 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 thanks, thanks very much. Uh, the robo advisor, yeah, that'll be an interesting. Well, I, yeah, it's a term that I have heard, and uh, yeah, but it's interesting how you say that you can justify fees by making something more automated, which is an interesting solution, isn't it? You, you remove an individual, and it still costs money. Well, so. the individual <laughs> will still will have to be there because obviously you cannot just call. Uh, 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 you can just can't take your phone and no. and, and get through to a call center and and give uh, a, your name, and they will have all the data that that they probably bought from some some company and then give you a financial a financial solution that's just that's just not going to happen no. now is there anything Guy, that you would totally avoid wouldn't ever put in your portfolio that some of our maybe some of our investors chronicle um, readers are holding well oh, i'm not so sure <laughs> I, I, <laughs> well i mean i i do hope that n n n none of your um subscribers or or um, uh, anyone in your audience uh, owns anything in Greece at the moment, but I, I suppose, I suppose that um, we 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 talked this morning in the office. We were thinking, you know, uh, you know if there is a devaluation, then that's probably what uh, Greece needs is is a, is, a, is a good old devaluation to um, to bring the uh, to to bring to reset the clock and uh, and hopefully um, um, kickstart a, a new a new a new growth a, a journey. At the end of the day, I think that would be the entry point for investors to come into a country that has been able to devalue uh, their, their currency. So which, which Greek banks look look good then? Oh, oh, <laughs> well, Greek, Greek disruptive uh, robo advisors, please. Well, I mean, all, all the all the all the banks will will probably become uh, interesting if they if they do half uh, in value from where they are today. Um, obviously, and they, they, these these and if they are if they are still part of, I mean. I mean it's, it's all speculations. It's speculation here. You know, it will depend whether or not they remain within the euro, which, which I think they, they will be. But I'm not so sure how they can devalue if they if they are still part of of, of the euro. So maybe it's not the right example. Um, I think uh, I think um, Japan is is the market you really want to 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 focus on at the moment, simply because the um, economics is is actually starting to to work its its way through wages um, are starting to rise um, employment is picking up picking up dramatically inflation is also picking up nicely earnings growth have have been have been surpassing expectations but also profitability the focus of profitability is suddenly becoming the number one priority so this is a country 
where companies have com completely um, um, disregarded or, 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 or did not did did not want to focus on shareholder compensation at all for the last 15 years and suddenly under pressure from corporate governance and uh, uh, Japanese pension funds these companies are suddenly coming back and saying well actually yes we're going to cut cost and redistribute some some of our excess cash back to shareholders and therefore re uh, improve our profitability and this is applying to Japanese financial services yes. companies as well yes, yes because yes. the the mega banks are are, are trading at discount to book because of all these years of poor return on equity, you know, with single digit but return on equity. So if we can now see some some focus on on on, on profitability, uh, these companies should not trade at a, at a discount to book anymore. What percentage holding would Japan be in your portfolio at the moment? Between ten and, and fifteen percent right. at this yeah. at this at this stage. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming in to talk to us today. Okay. Um, that was a fascinating a uh, discussion. Yeah, um, thanks, and thanks. And no offence, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Not taking it. Right. Great. <laughs> and now to topics in this week's magazine. From the 1st of July, ISAs will be able to hold a wider range of investments. Now, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Leonora Walters has been looking into this. Leonora, what is changing um, yes, um, from the 1st of July, ISAs, junior ISAs and child trust funds, in fact, um, will be able to hold basically a wider range of bonds and um, a few more investment trusts. Now, the bonds are going to be issued by the likes of housing associations and co cooperative societies um, and certain smaller companies. So it's certainly not, let's say, mainstream investments. In terms of investment trust changes, it actually only applies to free investment trusts, investment trusts which invest in peer-to-peer -peer loans. Uh, the reason they weren't eligible before was there's a rule that an investment trust, um, to go into an ISA, um, must have around 50% or more of its investment made up of securities that could be held in an ISA. And obviously at the moment, peer-to-peer -peer loans can't be. Um, but um, yeah, from the 1st of July, this rule goes. So even if an investment trust has got non, you know, a majority of non-ISAble holdings, it can now be um, held in an ISA. Um, and the free investment trust in question are P2P global investments. VPC specially, speciality lending investments and Ranger Direct lending. Now, what's maybe slightly confusing is some ISA providers of their own accord actually decided they could already be held in there. So you can actually, at the moment, go to Hargreaves Lansdowne Vantage um, and put P2P Global Investments and Ranger Direct into its ISA. But to clear all this up, a grey area, as one of the um, providers said, um, you know, you should be able to, in theory, um, put these investment trusts into an ISA after the 1st of July. That obviously is going to depend on the provider. Um, some are reviewing this. So, for example... Alliance, Trust and Fidelity, they're not going to automatically allow you to do that. Um, others are. So if you do want to hold these investment trusts within an ISA wrapper, check with your provider. Colin, can I ask you what you think of the new um, the flexibility in the investment rules? Is it a good thing? Should, it, should investors be paying attention to these new kinds of trusts? Yeah, I mean, the, the important thing is that as long as we can continue to make this progress in making more and more 
um, assets isorable, if there is such a term, uh, I think that can only be a good thing for investors. It, it's complex, isn't it? And it is a complicated um, story as to which investments do fit within those ISA rules and which don't. And obviously, take some advice from your provider or your advisor um, in that as you make some decisions, I would suggest. But I mean, there are obviously some risks involved, and, and that's a, a very important consideration. Um, I mean, these trusts, Leonora, are are quite new, aren't they? Yes, they are. I mean, not more than one year old. And um, as was considered to be, let's say, at the higher risk end of things because of the underlying assets, so it's certainly not a core holding for your portfolio. When you looked at them recently, Mm. they all give decent yields, but they're on high premiums as well. Yes, Which doesn't make them bargains. And have quite high fees. Ah. Mm. Uh, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, what we're weighing up here is something which is giving a yield of what six percent or so, I guess. And um, and yet, at the moment, if you're you're buying it at a premium, then obviously, effectively, you're locking in potentially a capital loss. I suppose is what you'd be looking at. And then, if you add in the fees as well, and then bearing in mind that the underlying assets are loans, you know, when when you un- unravel it all, there are significant risks for a, quite a limited upside, really if it's trading at a premium and you're getting a yield of 6% already. So it's one of those things of looking at what's the potential downside. Well, you lose your capital. The upside is 6%. That said, um, I suppose peer-to-peer lending is a growing area. Mm. So there's that attraction. It does seem to be um, a so far healthy um, and um, sort of like growing area which potentially could provide some good returns if you're a long-term investor. What about the uh, the wider um, bond options within ISAs? Um, Leonora, could you outline what's available that hasn't been? Yeah, well, basically, um, bonds issued by housing, associ- housing Association, Cooperative Societies and Community Benefit Societies um, and bonds issued by le- companies... Um, including those on certain small and medium-sized enterprise markets. So we're talking about, let's say, small-scale, quite niche organisation. And I suppose maybe we can read into that, let's say, perhaps not such high-quality, higher-risk things, and things certainly not covered by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, like a bond fund. Now, I, I ran this by some advisors, and they said that, well, individual bonds... I mean, they're higher risk and they don't offer diversity. And if you're a large investor and you know what you're doing, you know the company, you've got a big portfolio and can take some risk, fine. But basically, for the majority of investors, you are probably best sticking with a highly diversified bond fund, which is covered by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. And we've got lots of suggestions, let's say, in our IC Top 100 funds and in articles we've covered on Investors Chronicle on good bond funds. Colin, are there any uh, circumstances in which you would consider like a, a niche bond type investment for your for your clients as an investor? I can't think of any. And yeah. um, the the main concern I, I have with this is, as Leonora was alluding to, there is the liquidity issue, which is that it's hard enough at the moment in the general bond market that there are increasing issues with liquidity and, and large funds are, are now struggling to, to offload uh, bonds and there is a lack of dealing going on. So if we bring that down to those that are issued by SMEs, if you're buying it at the outset and you are prepared to hold it right the way through to redemption, then obviously liquidity isn't an issue but uh, how many clients are able to do that so I definitely want to hold this for 10 years Um, and and I think that's the issue so there is a risk issue there's a liquidity concern and of course protection which Leonora's alluded to already. 
Okay, well, moving on to another topic in this week's magazine, our portfolio clinic um, features a 56-year-old investor who has inherited a large portfolio as a result of a family bereavement. And the holdings in the inherited portfolio are very different to his original holdings, and he admits to finding it very difficult to combine the two portfolios under a balanced structure. And this has actually led him to consider stepping back from investing by employing a professional to manage the money. Now, Colin, you were one of the experts on this portfolio. What issues should you consider when deciding whether to invest yourself or to use a professional? Mm. What are the key things there? Well, obviously, I'm, I am coming at this from a slightly <laughs> yeah, biased yeah. angle. I, I admit, I, I have to do so. so I'll declare my interest <laughs> on that. Um, the, the thing is, I think there are people who, A, have the time, B, have the initiative, and C, have the enjoyment of managing their own portfolios. And uh, if that's you, then run with it, because it's a, it's a very interesting aspect. I do it for a living, and I find it interesting. So to be able to do it in your free time must be marvellous. Um, however, if you are looking for some assistance, it's a case of weighing up, are you looking for someone who is simply going to manage the investments, an investment manager, let's call them, or are you going to have somebody who's going to have a tax overlay on that, which is where a financial planner would come in. I would also favour independent financial advice. That's certainly the preference that I would express, partly because that's what I give. Uh, I think we would agree with you there, though, Colin. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think those are key things. Obviously, also look for maybe someone who's chartered as well. I think a charter financial planner just helps additional credibility. That is the highest qualification. They're the real professionals in the industry, and they've passed lots Lots of exams and they also have to have significant experience really to get to that position. Right. Yes. So you're looking at charter financial planners or certified financial planners. So that's really what you, you really want to be looking with someone with that credibility as well as the IFA status. Yeah. But what is it going to cost you? Because that that is the, the issue here. You know, good advice does cost quite a bit, doesn't yeah. it? So, And in my response, I was trying to just illustrate the fact that they're, they're seeing, the market seems to be breaking up into financial planners who say, actually, the investment is not our skill set. We will outsource that either to a multi-manager solution or to an asset allocation passive arrangement or to an investment manager or there are those who say no actually we will do the financial planning and we'll select the funds we'll manage the asset allocation we'll have regular reviews and change that now that's where we come from as a business so again I am biased uh, that I think that that's that's good so that the, the charging structure will be based on what the advisor is bringing to the table. Um, now you know this this chap is obviously um, a bit worried because suddenly he's got a, a lot a lot bigger, bigger portfolio to manage. So he's gone from a hundred thousand or so up to half a million, mm. but there's not really any extra work in managing a large portfolio compared to a smaller one, is there? I mean, you can you can still manage a large large amount of assets simply. Yeah. Um, now, how, how would you go about that? Well, the investment aspect, as you say, doesn't make any difference whether you're managing in, well, I would argue probably from over 100,000 up to a million or something. Essentially, you yeah. could run on the same model. The issue that then applies, and this is what I was trying to communicate in the in, in my response, was that actually it's the tax issues that then do make a difference. Obviously, you still have the same annual capital gains allowance, whether you've got an investment of 100,000 or a million or more, uh, you've got the same income tax rules. So the issue is how can you maximise the net return as an investor? Because it's all very well if you make 10% in a year, but if you lose 40% of that in tax, then it's a bit of a, uh, it's a shame. So actually, if you can hold more of that 10% return to yourself, then that's where a financial planner 
a good financial, independent financial advisor will be adding value. And is there more more to it than just use your tax breaks, use ISAs, use pensions? Absolutely. What, what can a financial planner do that's additional to that? For well, you? I would suggest that, again, as the level of investments increases and potentially also looking at the level of risk someone's prepared to take, there are things like venture capital trusts, there are uh, enterprise investment schemes and so on that are giving significant tax benefits to the investor. And again, that's then taking into account not just their lifetime tax position of income tax capital gains, but also inheritance tax arrangements as well. And if we've got an individual, perhaps like this one, who's looking to pass assets down a generation, then the lifetime tax that they suffer is important. But actually, if they lose 40% of that value on death, that's a huge loss. So all of those forms of tax need to be considered in any uh, financial planning. Great. We know that many of investors actually concentrate a lot on the investments that they manage themselves. Um, but what about investments that you can't control so much, such as your workplace pension scheme? And, and many, many inve- uh, employees who are saving into workplace pensions um, might, well, probably are invested in lifestyle funds. Now, this is a, a, a this name um, really means that the fund automatically shifts you into bonds in the run-up to retirement. Now, the fund will do this gradually. Um, but um, personal finance writer Kate Bealey has been looking at these lifestyle funds. And Kate, there, there are quite a lot of risks around this strategy, aren't there? Well, yeah, I think particularly at the moment because of the bond market, which is increasingly volatile. I think in the past, it was a, a kind of safe thing to do to move into bonds in, in the kind of five year run up to retirement. And particularly with these funds, where the idea is that you, you move on kind of autopilot into bonds, and then you buy an annuity when you retire. And, and the idea, obviously, that you've built up capital, and, and then you will buy an annuity. So obviously, that there's two issues. The first being that that is less suitable with kind of pension freedoms and if you're going to remain invested because you don't you don't necessarily want to be in bonds which might be very low yield you you want to be in something with a better income but it's also an issue with with bonds being a less safe asset at the moment they're much more volatile um, and a little more correlated to equities so a lot of people are saying that actually people might be moving into um, into the kind of annuity stage of these lifestyle funds without even realizing um, and their capital could be at risk. So what what can you what can you do about it if you're in a lifestyle fund? Do you need to I mean presumably a lot of um employers will will let you switch out of that. So who who do you contact? Colin, what, what do you tell people yeah. to do? The issue here is that these are often recommended as default solutions for people going into increasingly employers pension scheme, group pension schemes for example and also auto enrolment arrangements. This is part of the strategy. So yeah there needs to be a conscious decision made by the individual, the employee to say I want to switch from this to another fund. Um, So obviously just be informed and try and find out what you can about the scheme in which you're invested and see if there are other alternatives within the fund. You shouldn't need to move out of that pension scheme um, there's probably just a switch form that needs to be completed Mm. so either take some advice on that or look up the alternatives and and important to note actually i think a lot of companies are are looking at updating and these funds themselves you know standard life have updated their their default um lifestyle scheme so that it's moving out of longer duration bonds into shorter ones so and it's already moved over a lot of customers so a lot of employees who will be on that scheme but there will also be a lot of employees whose schemes are invested in the older funds who would need to ask 
to be moved. Yeah, it's, it's up to you to find out the the information Absolutely. from your um, mm. from your employer yeah. and the pension scheme and, and take the action. Really, yeah. there We're, we've just taken on a new client who's who's had this happen, and they've had two hundred thousand pounds sitting in cash for the last year uh, because did they, they realise that was they the were case? totally unaware of how the, mm. the process worked. So it's it's really important to to be up to date and up to speed with what's being invested in your name and how it's working. Yeah, and that's not just the investments that you're managing yourself. It's no. look, at, look at the Everything. rest of your assets. Exactly yes. That. Also, in this week's magazine, we're looking at biotechnology funds. Biotech has been the top performing stock market sector, but is it now headed for a fall? That's probably what a lot of people are thinking. Now, Kate, you've been looking at um, prospects for biotechnology and the funds that invest in this sector. Do you think the rise can continue? Yeah, well, that, that's the big question, isn't it? I mean, biotechnology has delivered such incredible returns over the past 10 years. The top trust and the top fund are kind of the top in the whole universe of, of funds. So it's obviously appealing. But everybody is a bit worried that this is a bubble. I mean, it does look a bit like those tech stocks did before the dot-com um, boom and then crash. And it's difficult to know whether this is a great thing to be involved in because it's of the rise or whether you're getting in at the top and you could lose a lot of money very quickly. I mean, we've had five years, haven't we, of, of really, mm. really great um, growth and great performance yeah. from these funds, haven't we? Which, uh... Yeah, I, I mean, I think you've got to look at what is actually happening in that market. I mean, obviously, the index is rising. So what's happening is, is the share prices of these companies are, are soaring. And a lot of these are companies which don't have any earnings because they, they're obviously developing a drug and it might get through it might not and so those share prices are being driven by a series of merger and acquisitions and IPOs so the question we need to ask is are investors pouring money into companies which are developing the next you know the, the cure for cancer or or are they just kind of pouring money into a, a lot of smaller companies with little chance of success which obviously would lead to a crash I mean, I think it's something to point out is that 70, of the 71 biotech companies listed in the US last year, about 40% of those had drugs which are at pre-clinical stage. So not a proven drug yet. And that certainly looks a bit risky. But on the flip side, actually, we've you know come on a long way in terms of what we understand about diseases. And um, the US regulator is approving more drugs than than kind of in the mid-90s now. So, so there is a lot to be said. On the flip side... Because a lot of these... Um investments are over there in the US investors will be using funds really to access mm. the sector won't they yeah uh, and there's a couple of um, of investment trusts that specialize in this sector yeah and and they they have performed really well I mean the biotech growth trust being the top and over 10 years that's returned over 750 percent investors will be very happy with that <laughs> so yes. yeah I mean the question is obviously will it do it again in the next 10 years maybe not but um and the, i mean the same for the international biotechnology trust it's returned less but uh, kind of over 440 percent that's still that's still very impressive still very very respectable colin would you invest in biotechnology if you were starting today what, what's your thoughts on the sector uh, well funny enough my uh, contact at axa framlington has been nagging me for 10 years to buy their biotech fund and then the last two or three times he's seen me he kept saying did, did you do it did you do it and i said no i didn't um <laughs> but i think this is um so we haven't. And again, I think we just take the overview that actually if a company is a good company, it's worth investing in. And, and actually to try and pick a sector is quite a, a, a high risk strategy. If you get it right, as we've seen here, 
fantastic, you do incredibly well. Uh, but if you get it wrong, then you're left with egg on your face, and that's not a or or a capital loss, which is worse. So um, <laughs> that's that's one thing just to be mindful of. <clears throat> but I think again, we've got to look at there's fundamentally been some reasons why biotech companies have done very well and that's that the big pharmaceutical companies cut down on research and development several years ago and and so essentially this has been the nursery for growth of trying to establish these new um, medical solutions and and the, the issue is once those companies are bought are there new solutions that are going to be developed by other mm. um, companies out there? And that's the big unknown. And this is a, where you need a specialist in the sector. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But would you want to invest in something that's returned 750 over the last 10 years? Well, if it was 10 years ago, yes, I would. But I wouldn't have known it was going to do it then. Yeah. So. And I mean, I think that if you are already invested, it could be a time to take profits, couldn't it? Could because well be. Obviously, you'll have been left with a lot more than you have when you put in I think I think the general consensus seems to be that yes if you are invested maybe take profits but don't come out and if you're not invested maybe just phase phase the money in because you could well just be getting in at the top and you could, you could have a lower risk approach as well, couldn't you? By mm. by taking out sort of like a, like a global healthcare that ha- mm. fund that has some exposure to biotech, and there you're sort of dipping your toe in as mm. well. Yeah, there uh, are some really good funds that are, are sort of global thematic funds that look for things like this: Picte Global Megatrends or Saracen Food and Agriculture, which are looking at dipping into these in terms of a, a greater global theme and they've certainly benefited from that over the last few years um, but yeah I think you're absolutely right Kate that one of the key things here is to say if you've made some money then rebalance your portfolio and I think that's something that people often forget is that if you had five percent in it three years ago go back to having five percent in it now and take that profit distribute it somewhere else. I think that's a very good note to end on because unfortunately that is all we have time for today. A final thank you to my special guests Colin Lowe of Kingsfleet Wealth and Guy de Blonnet of Jupiter and to my colleagues Leonora Walters and Kate Bealey of the Investors Chronicle. You can read more about biotech funds, the ISA rule changes and lifestyle funds in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening. <laughs>